Hello, this is Steve Turk. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, where every movie is decided by the roll of a die. Joining me today is my usual cohort, Ben. Hi, everybody. Michaela can't be with us this episode, so we brought in a special guest host, writer, producer, man of man that knows movies more than anybody else, especially if they're B-movies, Nick Brown. Hey, thanks for having me on, Steve. Ben, it's good to uh, it's good to join you guys today. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. And Nick, you're you're one of the um, co-hosts of the B Movie Cast podcast. Yes, I am. That is, uh, I've been doing that for twelve and a half years now. So, <laughs> so you've been so you've been doing that since Ben was about seven or eight years old. Wow, I'm depressed now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know, that is, uh, that is the thing that, you know, people say, oh my God, you started doing that when I was a little kid. And I'm like, oh God, I'm that guy now. Wow. <laughs> but see the good part, I look at it the different way. Hey, it, it's not an age, it's a level. So you and I are getting to higher levels, like in Dungeons and Dragons, where people are going to be like really worried about us. Exactly. I just hit level 50 in March. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty, uh. I'm pretty high up. The problem is that unlike Dungeons and Dragons, as your level goes up, your hit dice go down. It's really, it's, it's really weird, this inverse relationship. So, you know, I'm down to a D6 and, uh, that's, you know, I'm starting to worry when I see, you know, like Knowles coming up to me, I'm like, Hey, back off, dude, just back off. (laughs) So that's where our wisdom and intelligence scores start to go higher, even though our constitution score and strength score and dexterity drop. Exactly. You know, but we still, but Nick, you and I both have the charisma. There you go. I, I, I can't argue that at all. What can I say? The chicks dig the Nickster. <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't know how to follow yeah, that I, up there, Nick. You know? <laughs> I, I know you just, I, if you, if you want somebody to derail a podcast, just ask Nick to come on because I, I know exactly what to say that nobody can respond to. <laughs> okay. To put us back on track, the movie that we're talking about today is the guns of Navarone. And who would like to give a synop a quick synopsis of the film? Well, just before we do the synopsis, um, Nick had to roll the dice off um, audio. He did this a few weeks ago and he rolled action. And your first pick was what Nick? Uh, my first pick was actually Kelly's heroes. Which, and I know you, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, which sadly for you, we, we, we were putting out that same day. We had already recorded it and I had to tell Nick, it's like, you were like a week too late. <laughs> and what are the odds of that? That I just, I pulled Kelly's Heroes because that's actually my favorite military action movie, period, is Kelly's Heroes. So, and you know, we've I'm, only done like We've only done like 15 or 20 movies at that time. So the odds of you picking... A movie that we did. <laughs> well, and one that you, and one that you're recording right then. I mean, my God, you know. So you uh, should have bought but, a lottery ticket that day. Uh, you know what? I should have, but uh, I got I got a lot of should haves in my life, and that's one of them. So you know, but that is funny though, and and it's uh, you know I I was excited. I get excited about the Kelly's Heroes on top of everything else because of uh, the John Landis tie-in. So you know, the John Landis tie-in. What you don't know the John Landis tie-in? 
No, we don't. I'm gonna well, be I don't know who John Landis is. Oh, uh, oh. the okay, the director and writer of the Blues Brothers, Animal House, and my favorite werewolf movie, an American Werewolf in London. Oh, okay. As a matter, and here's the tie-in. So John Landis was a uh, low-level production assistant working on Kelly's Heroes. And while they were out filming, and I'm trying to remember what country, and I'm sorry, I don't have my notes with me on this, but they were filming in a little, you know, part of Europe, uh, remote areas, obviously. And they sent John Landis and a couple other PAs out to find locations to shoot different scenes. And while they were out finding locations, they went into this little pub, essentially, in like Romania or somewhere like that, where they were filming this. And it was literally, they walked in and everyone, you know, it was very vibrant. Everybody was talking and everybody just shut up and turned and looked at them when they came in. Because who are these people that have come into our little town in the middle of nowhere? And there they are. And you know, looking at the rustic nature of this little pub that they went into and the way the locals reacted, it got John Landis's imagination stirring. And so literally, while he was working as a production assistant on Kelly's Heroes, the concept for an American werewolf in London was born. And so that whole opening pub scene ties directly back into his experience in while he was working as a production assistant on Kelly's heroes. And that we didn't so there know. You go. That, that, that actually, it's nice that we didn't, and the Kelly's heroes was an episode we did not that long ago. Yeah. So there you go. You can, uh, you can cut and paste this in at the end of it too, if you want <laughs> <laughs> double down. Well, Ben being the sound editor, he doesn't usually go back to do work. He he, he believes oh. in looking at the present and going to the future. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it. And you know what? This gives the podcast some continuity. It's not a standalone episode anymore. See? <laughs> that now is it's true. a universe of episodes. It, exactly. You know, that is that is the way you do it anymore. I mean, that's how you do TV shows. You can't have standalone episodes anymore. Everything's got to be part of a season long story arc, you know? So I uh, don't get me started on that by the way, but. <laughs> oh yeah. That's yeah. Cause we'll, we'll, we can talk about that later. Yeah. I know, I know what you mean. I, I, I like standalone episodes, but I don't mind whatever. That's movie, I like that's TV shows. <laughs> that's TV. Who cares about TV when, when we've got guns going on. Yes, and then you picked Guns of Navarone, and just before we talk about it, we're going to play the trailer for the movie so people get an idea. If, they, if for some reason they haven't seen this movie that's been around for, what, uh, 59 years? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if somebody hasn't, doesn't know it, they'll get an idea roughly what it's about. Carl Foreman's The Guns of Navarone. The greatest high adventure of our time. With a cast as exciting as the story it tells. Gregory Peck. David Niven. Anthony Quinn. Stanley Baker. Anthony Coyle. James Darren. Irene Pappas. Gia Scala. 
Alistair McLean's best-selling novel, Live to the Hilt on the Islands of the Aegean Sea. I'd like to tell you something about the guns of Navarone, because it's the most unusual film in which I've ever appeared. I play the role of Mallory, the man whose job it is to lead six expert cutthroats and saboteurs on a desperate and impossible mission. Watch out! Ah! Robbery! Robbery! What makes it even more desperate and impossible is that some of us hate each other even more than we do the enemy. That's all right pretty good partner you've got there yourself. He's going to kill me when the war is over. You think that you've been getting away with it all this time, standing by. Well, son, your bystanding days are over. You're in it now, up to your neck. They told me that you're a genius with explosives. Start proving it. You got me in the mood to use this thing. And by God, if you don't think of something, I'll use it on you. The guns of Navarone is crowded with action and excitement. But it is even more than great adventure. Over and above its tremendous thrill, this is a story of human beings, each with his intense personal fears, his deep personal conflicts, each with his moments of triumph and tenderness. This is a story of unrivaled courage. Easter! And suspense. Quietly, gentlemen, unless you want a great many innocent people killed as well as yourselves. Everyone is staying exactly where you are. The party's over. Somebody's stepped on the cake, which means that there is a traitor in this room. The Guns of Navarone, I promise you, is probably the most exciting film you will ever see. And as you can hear with that trailer, there is a lot of guns and explosions in the trailer. They blow a lot. They blow a lot of stuff up in that movie. That's the truth. So, <laughs> yes, yes, they do. And um, but it's I'll go next. It's all. Yeah, I was gonna say it's all good though because it's all German stuff for the most part, you know. <laughs> and it's pretty well spread out, especially for a a war film. It has enough length and enough scenes with the characters in between just blowing things up to make it work more. Well, that's it because they don't spend, it's not one of those films where they spend the whole thing blowing stuff up and killing people. But at the same time, they also don't spend the whole time sitting around talking, which can drag stuff out. I think it's, it's, the Lord of the Rings with explosives sort of, cause you know, they've got to go on their quest to the mountain. And uh, when they get there, they've got to do their job. But uh, it's 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 a good movie. I like it. 
So you're saying we should call this, the, if they ever did another sequel, it should be The Fellowship of Navarone. The, well, you know, it's funny because we were talking about Force 10 from Navarone. And the only reason that they stuck Navarone in that title was because they wanted that to be a sequel to Guns, The Guns of Navarone. And they wanted to make sure they could tie the two films together without having to call it The Guns of Navarone Part 2. Because that wouldn't have made any sense because they weren't going after guns in that one. But, you know, I digress. So <laughs> Now, Nick, before we ask you to give us a brief summary of the movie, wh why did you mm -hmm. pick The Guns of Navarone? Well, you know, it's funny because after you said we had to do an action movie because of the roll of the dice, I got to kicking around different action movies in my head. And I'd been thinking about something, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark type movies, you know, or King Solomon's Mines. And then for some reason, I think it's because Fiona and I had been talking about Kelly's Heroes recently. And I love that film. And, you know, my favorite character, and it's Oddball, you know, Donald Sutherland. And uh, I just, I was like, you know what? It'd be fun to sit and talk about Kelly's Heroes. It's one of those movies that I've been thinking about bringing up for us to do on the B-Movie podcast. And I just thought, you know, this would be a good opportunity to do it. So I said, hey, let's do Kelly's Heroes. And when you said that wasn't available, my mind had locked in on, okay, I'm doing a war movie now. It went from being an action film to being specifically an action war film. And immediately, the next movie on my list of war movies that I like is The Guns of Navarone. You know, so that was, that was what brought me right into that one. And then if you had said, oh, and we're recording that one tomorrow, then I was going to say, <laughs> then I was going to suggest Force 10 from Navarone as the follow-up to Guns of Navarone. But that's why, that, but that's how I ended up coming to Guns of Navarone, because it is one of my top five military slash war films. I can see now what will be, if we, when we bring you back down the road, uh, what movie you probably want to do. <laughs> you know, it would, I would be happy to do that. But at the same time, we are all at the whim of the dice. And so let the dice fall where they may. I'm not going to shoehorn Force 10 from Navarone into it. So if it says romantic comedy, I could probably make an argument about Force 10 from Navarone. <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> I, will, uh, I, will, I will bend to the dice. And I know if we roll documentary, you'll say, well, every film is a documentary. <laughs> Uh, well, that's it. Well, Force 10 is a perfect documentary of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, I could take it down so many different roads, but. <laughs> I, I do think we would get you if you rolled animation. You know, that would be a tough one for you to try to, to get there. But we'll, <laughs> we'll, let you, we'll let you think about that when the, die, when the dice are rolled at the end of this. To see I was going to say, give me, give me a little time. When you roll the dice at the end, I'll see what I can do about shoehorning. So I, I got a bit. I. I have little tiny shoes, so I do a lot of shoehorning, okay? I'm just saying. Uh, you know, that sounded vaguely bad, I think. But anyway. Only, Sorry, it, moving on. But what I say, if, you, if people look for bad things, they'll see bad things. So, Well, and I'm always looking for bad things. That's one of my problems. Well, there you go. Um, can, you give, can you give the um, audience a brief synopsis of what the movie's about so they have an idea well, what we'll be talking about? Well, sure. And here's the deal. 
so there's a, a small, you know, during World War II, the Mediterranean was one of the theaters of action. But it was interesting because Turkey, which is very significant presence there in that region, had not joined either the Axis or the Allies. They were kind of sitting on the fence. And there was a lot of pressure on them to jump one way or the other. And whichever way Turkey went could possibly determine the course of the war. Because 1943, World War II was still anybody's game. As a matter of fact, at that point, the Axis powers were actually doing a lot better they had taken a significant portion of Europe. You know, the war in the Pacific wasn't going great. Uh, so, you know, things were, this would have been a bad time to have a powerful country like Turkey decide to side with the uh, Axis. So, so the uh, Allies have some forces that are trapped on a small island in the Mediterranean. And that island <clears throat> is guarded by the past to that island is guarded by two massive and i mean massive radar directed you know guns artillery guns in this what is really a fictional island of navarone which kind of controls the past and so these two there's 2000 allied troops on this island and the germans have decided that the way to get the turkish uh, military to decide to be on their side is that they're going to send in an elite force a massive force of trained you know nazi soldiers are going to go in and destroy the 2000 allied soldiers trapped on this little island so of course the allies want to get them out but the only way they can get them out is to sail six destroyers through the pass right by the by those guns. So they can't do it if the guns are still there. So what are they going to do? Well, they decide that they're going to get a uh, they're going to get a force together uh, led by uh, Roy Franklin, Major Roy Franklin, who's played by Anthony Quayle, and they also are getting a a uh, special operative named Captain Keith Mallory, played by Gregory Peck. And he's a spy and an officer who worked, who has worked a lot with uh, Franklin. And he also, before the war, was a mountaineer. And that's important because the only way to get onto Navarone Island without being detected by the German presence there is to scale a 400-foot vertical cliff. And they have to do it in the middle of the night. And so they need somebody who knows how to scale mountains. And it just so happens that Keith Mallory was a mountaineer. Uh, he's also going to lead a, uh, a ragtag, I guess, as they described it, a band of cutthroats and killers. And the other fellow in it is Colonel Andre Stavro, who was played by Anthony Quinn. And he was a member of the Greek Army who had also worked with uh, Mallory. And they also have a fellow named uh, Corporal Miller, and that's David Niven. He's an ex explosives expert, and actually he was supposedly a former chemistry teacher. And then we have Spiros Papadimos. And that was a teen heartthrob at the time, James Darren. And he was actually a guy from Navarone, the island. And his dad is actually supposedly the leader of the resistance on the island. And then to round it out, we've got Butcher Brown. And that's uh, Stanley Baker. 
and he's an engineer and an expert knife fighter. And so this motley crew decides to get, well, they don't decide to get together. They are thrown together and sent on what is essentially a suicide mission to try and blow up these guns. And they've got five days to do it. And so they get them a little fishing boat and they set sail across the Aegean Sea. They have a pretty intense encounter with the German patrol boat, but they managed to knock those guys off. But then, of course, they run into a big storm, and they end up smashing up on the shore of Navarone. Fortunately, they're pretty close to where they need to be to scale the cliffs, so they're able to go ahead and do their mountain climb in the middle of the night in the middle of a rainstorm. And they they climb the cliff, and during the climb, though, Franklin falls, and he breaks his leg in two places. So now this really tense scene comes in where they have to decide what they're going to do with him because the Germans are probably coming to investigate what's going on over on this cliff because one of their patrols has been killed. So they need to get out of there, and their choice is take Franklin with them or leave Franklin to be captured by the Germans and interrogated and most likely give away their plan or put a bullet in his head. And that really sets up this strong dynamic between David Niven, Corporal Miller, and uh, Gregory Peck, Mallory, because Mallory is all about getting the job done. And Corporal Miller is all about protecting his friend, Franklin. And so it's a really tense moment. They end up taking Franklin with them. Uh, they cross the island, uh, meet up with some of the resistance leaders. In fact, they meet up with Spiro's sister, Maria, and she was played by Irene Pappas, and her friend, the mute former school teacher Anna, played by Gia Scala. And Anna is a mysterious woman. She was tortured by the Nazis for six months, and now she's a staunch resistance fighter. So anyway, they're trying to sneak across the island, and they constantly run into the Germans. It's like the Germans know every move they're making, and that just goes on and on and on until they're finally captured. And they're actually captured by Oberlieutenant uh, Musel, or Musel, played by Walter Gotel, who everybody knows if you need a Nazi or if you need a Russian, you go to Walter Gotel. And he's the guy that was, uh, he was M's Russian counterpart in some of the Bond films, even, especially uh, in the 70s and 80s. I think his character's name was Gogol. But anyway, this guy is a fairly reasonable fella. Uh, He's questioning them. Then an SS uh, lieutenant comes in, Sicer, and he starts to torture them. Well, Stavros manages to fake them out. They escape, capture the uniforms, but they leave Franklin with the Germans because his leg's infected. He's got gangrene. He's going to lose it. So what do you do? But Gregory Peck cleverly feeds uh, his buddy, Franklin, a bunch of false information. He says they had just gotten this radio broadcast that the uh, Allied forces were going to come in from the north side of that island and take it, and that really their mission now was just to cause trouble. And Gregory Peck knew that the Nazis may torture him and he wouldn't talk, but if they gave him scopalamine— which is a drug that it's a it's kind of a narcotic, but one of the things it does it's kind of a essentially it's a date rape drug because what it does is it makes you 
not remember what happened while you're on it, but also it's it makes you very susceptible to suggestion. And if there's ever been what would be considered a true truth serum, it's scopalamine. And just as a hot shots fun fact, scopalamine was also the drug that the mad doctor was giving to uh, uh, the kid in I was a teenage land uh, I was a teenage werewolf, Michael Landon. His character was given scopalamine as part of his regression therapy that turns him into a werewolf. But anyhow, I'm sorry, I've just gone down a dark road there with that. Uh, the guys escape, obviously, and they end up having to do a – they split up into three groups, essentially, to accomplish their mission. Do they accomplish their mission? Well, I'm going to leave that to you, the viewer, to go and find out. But I will say that there is a lot of tension in this film, especially between Anthony Quinn's character and uh, between and Gregory Peck's character, because Anthony Quinn and Gregory Peck's characters had worked together, and Gregory Peck's Mallory had inadvertently allowed a German, uh, a captured German patrol past. And they had in turn escaped and uh, killed uh, Stavros's family. So at the end of the war, as you heard during the trailer, Anthony Quinn's character was going to kill Gregory Peck's character. So a lot of tension going on there. So anyway, that's the guns of the Navarone. And by the way, those were some big-ass guns. That's all there is to it. Thank you for that brief synopsis. And by brief, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> well, I mean, Sorry, it, you know. It is a two-hour and 30-minute movie, so it's 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 no really, it, there's no way to put it down to a quick five-second elevator pitch. <laughs> okay, here's your, here's your elevator pitch. Six dudes, six really old commandos go to Greece and try to blow up some guns. I'm sure. I'm sure James Darren is is thinking. Thanks for calling me old when he was probably what by far the youngest guy. Well, <laughs> you know, and it's <clears throat> well, it's funny because James Darren was actually he took that role specifically because he was trying to get out of all those roles where he would be the teenage heartthrob, and <clears throat> so if you listen to his character and count his dialogue, he only has something like ten or. 14 lines, I think, in the entire movie. You see, I mean, he... No, he I mentioned barely, that. While we were oh, alive. do you? Oh, you go first. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous how little dialogue he has, but, you know. Yeah, well, we were watching it yesterday. We get, we're about halfway through the movie, and I'm like, man, that one dude who's always shooting, he never talks. And then, of course, there's the first scene where he talks right after I say it. And my dad's like, see, he talks. And I'm like, oh, come mm -hmm. on. And then every time well, we had a line of dialogue, I say, look, he's talking again. Now, Benny's singing. Yeah, but it's funny because if you look compared to everybody else, he really doesn't have much dialogue at all. And, you know, that's, that's because he was a teen, you know, he was a teen heartthrob. I mean, uh, you know, he did. I mean, he was in T.J. Hooker. <laughs> he was in the movie Gidget. He was. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, he did Gidget right after he did Guns of Navarone. So, you know, he did all the Gidget movies, though. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess he was in a very transitional phase of his life because he had just got married before he did this role and was actually on his honeymoon during this film. He did Gidget, wow. did Gidget two years prior. 
Oh, did he do that two years prior? Yeah, he did another Gidget movie, Gidget Goes Gidget Goes Hawaiian, the same year of Guns of Navarone. Okay, and, that's and right. Gidget yeah. Goes to Rome and all that stuff. But he did, he was Moondoggy in Gidget. Oh, God. <laughs> the Gidget movies. I, I watched those when I was a kid. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, that was his thing, though. He was willing to take a role that didn't have a lot of dialogue simply because he wanted to try and break out of the teen heartthrob singing in his movies uh, role. So, of course, he sings in the movie, but that's beside the point. (laughs) But it does fit in the movie for him to have that song. Oh, yeah. Because he's singing one. He's he's Greek, so he's singing um, at the Greek wedding. Um, I think the song is Seaside in its translation. And uh, Mm. at the end of the podcast, when we exit out, we're going to be playing that version that's in the movie. It's like 90 seconds. Uh, oh, it's a, and it's a good, it's a good little, it's a good little song too. And you know, it's funny though, because I always think about in the fifties, how the teen movies, they, no matter what the movie was, they always tried to shoehorn a little rock and roll musical number into them. And so they would just drop a musical number, you know, whether it's, you know, earth versus the spider, the giant Gila monster, whatever, the kids would always end up rocking out to some groovy beats at some point. And so I just thought it was funny that they had James Darren singing the song, even though it's appropriate in the middle of Guns of Navarone. But he definitely wasn't rocking out to groovy beats, that's for sure. As I say, if the teenagers are rocking out to that song, then that's a different type of history than I've been told that people are rocking out to back in the early 60s. Well, you know, back in the day, they used to rock out to the strangest music, uh, kids today. I know. Well, you're younger than I am. You're younger than I am, so it's... uh, Yeah, well, uh, that doesn't mean I can't be crusty. That's true. (laughs) 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 So, um... Let's go, let's go around and just talk about things that we enjoyed with the movie. And um, okay. since we haven't heard from Ben in a while, let's let's give Ben a chance to talk about a thing or two, and we can play off that. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of the dialogue between Gregory Peck's character and David Niven's character. Mm. Especially some of David Niven's, like, funnier lines that were supposed to... They were almost... From the time that they got on the ship, it was almost like he would direct his remarks towards Captain, uh, I just, Mallory, Captain Mallory, I just blanked on his name for some reason. He was, because he picked that boat, he started directing his quips towards Captain Mallory, and it just kind of spirals into this thing where it's almost like, at part of the movie, you almost think David Niven's character just hates Captain Mallory. And then towards the end, he, I guess the stress had gotten to him, but after the end of the film, he's kind of more relaxed towards him. Not mm. as malicious. I look as, as Miller's character or, or um, David Niven's. David Niven's character, Miller, as being um, somebody who doesn't like authority. And the only person he likes is Lucky, the major, who are, who are good pals, but the rest of the time he doesn't like, he doesn't want to be in charge, doesn't like being told what to do. And I will agree with Ben. One of the, I think one of the ongoing lines, the ongoing jokes he says is, just remember, I can't swim. Yeah. 
Well, and one of the things was he was doing, he had done such a good job as an explosives expert that they kept trying to give him promotions. And he kept turning them down because he did not want to be an officer because he did not want to be responsible for making any of the decisions. And, you know, you heard that big line in the uh, trailer when Gregory Peck says, well, you're up to your neck in it now, mister, you know, and that's, that is one of the best little exchanges I think ever because Mallory, they were in a position, I don't know if you want to give away that little bit of the little, little secret bit of the plot, but they're in a position where somebody may need to be killed. And basically Niven is just going to town on Gregory Peck's character, Mallory, about how he's a ruthless killer, willing to do whatever he needed to do to get the job done and blah, blah, blah. And it is just such a very intense little bit of dialogue between them. You know, you you had brought up that he really sort of takes on this role of picking on Mallory. Well, that really comes to a head with that scene. And it's funny because that scene plays out and then Mallory has to turn around and get in his face. And that's the bit that was in the trailer that you played. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think you're giving anything away and because it was in the trailer, you know, and uh, yeah. also that was prior to that scene from Miller's perspective is when he found out about how Mallory fed false information to the major, knowing that they would probably use this truth serum and then that would give them the, the chance to distract all the forces away so they could have a better chance of getting into where the guns were. And uh, Miller was just like, at first I thought you were this nice person, you know, like you did this. And now I found out it was all just a plan, you know, and, and, and totally hated his character at that point. Yeah. And, and I think that played into where, are, are you going to do this yourself or are you going to have somebody else do it for you? It's just. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really intense bit. And I'll tell you what's also funny, going back to Force 10 from Navarone, when we get to Force 10 from Navarone, it's Mallory and Corporal Miller that are brought back. And the way those two interplay in that film makes you think that they became best buddies in the interim between the two movies, which I want to say the interim would only be about eight or 12 months. But, you know, that's beside the point. It was long enough for Gregory Peck to turn into Robert Shaw. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, things, things do change over, over well, they do. years. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, and so what else did you like about it, Ben? Um, I kind of liked how, well, I'm not sure if I would say I liked it, but I thought it was interesting how immediately after Lucky goes down, uh, Keith Miller or Keith Mallory just takes over being the leader of the group and how kind of beforehand he had been working with uh lucky or cap captain. I forgot his last name. Uh, Anthony Quayle's character. It was a no, Anthony um, Quinn's character was um, a colonel in the, the Greek army. I think Anthony Quayle. Yeah. Stavros. Oh, Anthony, oh, you're yeah. About Anthony Quayle. Oh, Anthony Quayle. Yeah. He was a major. Yeah. He was major Roy Franklin. So. And they did mention it earlier, technically Stavros outranked all of them. That's true. Only the Greek army was kind of defeated at that point. Yes. So. 
Yes. Yeah, but but it's yeah, it's it was very interesting to see how they forced Gregory Peck's character into that leadership role. And I think the only reason that that stuck for him was he was all about getting the mission done at whatever cost. You know. I think the and, other thing was the other two characters that we haven't talked as much about, the engineer slash knife fighter, he was known as the Butcher of Barcelona. I, yeah. He, like, at that point, Mallory was addressing him. He had almost, like, he had just botched his job up to that point, basically. He mm-hmm. wasn't as advertised. It was like you That's you a, bought a knife set online and it came with one knife instead of the full set. <laughs> That's a brilliant way of putting it, actually. Because <laughs> yeah, he uh, what was it? It was when they were on the patro- when they were on the fishing boat, and the patrol boat came at them, and they had to kill all the guys on the patrol boat. He, you know, it's sort of like you had one job, dude. You know, your name is the butcher, and you didn't butcher that guy. So what the hell? And yeah, that was uh, that was interesting too. The way they played that out. Well, according to when I read about the book, there was one character who was um, more of a pacifist, and I think that's what they tried to do with um, Brown Stanley Baker's character was to show that he was this, but then all that, as, as he said, he's been in this war for a lot longer and killing people up close. And eventually, it just broke him where he where he's just like, I can't do this anymore. And um, yeah. which almost cost which, him. Oh, it did. It, yeah, we're getting. I'm getting feedback. It was just the one time. Just one time. Yeah, it, it almost cost him at the patrol boat, and of course, um, um, later on in the movie, it might have cost him. Yeah, it cost him a lot more, Al. <laughs> but and it's funny because he was actually, you know, they build Anthony Quinn, Gregory Peck, and David Niven as the big stars. But at the time this film was made, Stanley Baker was a huge star in the UK. He was very big in uh, British cinema and film. And because this was an American production through a British company and some other things, uh, he just didn't get the billing that he kind of deserved for this. And he, t- he was put into a what I would consider that smaller role of the uh, butcher of Barcelona. Yeah, and it was almost like after... Once they get up onto the top of the cliff and Mallory addresses him and kind of tells him off a little bit to try and get his head on straight, after that it's like a montage of punishing him by giving him like yes. the crappiest jobs or anytime that he volunteers for something saying no and having the youngest guy go and do it. Kind of like yeah. showing that the trust isn't there and that now Mallory believes he's just incompetent. Hmm. I don't think you want to send a, a guy that's not going to kill people out on guard duty. You know, it's uh, a. <laughs> well, you know, it depends if you're if you're guarding a mall, it's OK. But if you're guarding a camp from Nazis, I think you want somebody that's going to going to go in and pull the trigger or at least stick the knife in and give it a twist, you know. Yeah, you put, I'm putting yeah, put it in context. We're talking about the movie. Obviously, it's a war movie, you know, and you want well, the yeah. to be able to do, to keep the guy safe, and you can't have somebody out there. You, how are you going to sleep if you have somebody protecting you, so to speak, that you can't trust is going to actually be able to do the job? Exactly. 
Speaking of somebody that doesn't talk much in this movie, Anna. Oh, yeah, Anna. Oh, God, yeah, she was, uh, God, okay, who was it? That was uh, Gia Scala. Yeah, Gia Scalo. She was a honey, too. And that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, well, from um, what we've read or saw in the special features, um, she was um, eccentric. And the director made her cut her hair in a boy's haircut. She did not want to cut it. She wanted to pull it up or whatever, but he made her cut it. And then somewhere during the time of the filming, she went up to him and said, oh, do you need a haircut? I'll cut your hair. And she, like, butchered the back of his head with, the, <laughs> you know, with, like, the, like, the razor just made a stripe or whatever. And um, James Darren happened to walk in and see it. And uh, the director, um, Lee Thompson, J. Lee Thompson, said, to James Darren, what's it look like? And he um, looked at Gia. Gia looked at him and nodded like, no, don't say anything. And he goes, oh, it looks great. And then from that point on, the director would always go to James um, Darren's um, trailer, trailer changing room. or whatever and make him do the makeup on the back of his head to you know, color it in or whatever so people couldn't see. He had this, like, bald streak on the back <laughs> of his head as punishment for lying about the haircut. Well, of course <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> I believe the director said that he had also gotten Gia Scala to do this film based on prior work that they had had together. Mm-hmm. I think he said that the movie he had shot right before he got involved with the Guns of Navarone was one that he had shot and she was in it. And so he just wanted to get her involved with the film. Okay. Well, and that makes sense. And, you know, while her role wasn't huge... It was very important. Yep. So, you know. Ugh. But yeah, she was she was she was kind of set up as a love interest for almost as a love interest, I think, for Gregory Peck's character. And there is a scene where she comes out, they're in like a they're hiding out in a in a building and spending the night and Gregory Peck is taking guard duty. And there's a scene where she comes out and they have a bit of a passionate kiss there. And, you know, they do that classic, it fades away to the next morning. And you're kind of left wondering, did they do more than a passionate kiss or anything? I don't know. You know, that's, it left me wondering that. And that particular bit kept playing in my mind during the preceding scenes or the following scenes where Gregory Peck has to make this real heart-wrenching decision about what to do with somebody, you know. But anyway. Well, yeah, and um, I, I just enjoyed the way she was able to, um, most of the time she was not speaking, the vast majority yep. of the time, let's put it that way. So she was acting with just her body language, facial expressions, and, um, and she was able to do a nice performance that way. You know, I mean, it wasn't great, but it, but it did the job. It was, it was, it was solid and it set up, um, different plot points as the movie went along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, she was good. And who else did we like in this film? Uh, I enjoyed when I watched the special features after I enjoyed hearing about the director. Uh, apparently he didn't get involved with the film until a week before they started shooting. So they really? had, they had had a different director beforehand and they had been 
working on getting this production moving, I think they said for almost a year at this point. And this other director, I believe it was Anthony Quinn, was talking about when he was lining up a shot for the boat. He was saying something like, move the boat three inches to the right or something. And Anthony Quinn said he must have turned to Gregory Peck and been like, this guy's not going to be our director. Yeah, the director, according to the all-knowing Wikipedia, Uh-oh. the original director was Alexander McKendrick. And, um, and he said he wanted to take what was essentially a typical action picture, action-packed wartime melodrama, and give it some pretentious overtones. And then okay. the producer fired him a week before for creative differences. <laughs> And Jay Lee Thompson came on mostly because Gregory Peck, Gregory Peck liked his, um, was impressed by his Northwest Frontier movie. I think Gregory Peck said in the, um, on the special features, there was another movie too. One of them was an action movie that he thought did really well. One of them was a, um, a drama, a character driven piece. Yeah. And he thought this would be the perfect person because he could do the character moments and the action moments and, um, and handle them, you know, according to Gregory Peck, very well. And that's how, um, the director got the job. And while gosh, he was right. It, it did work very well in this movie with both character driven moments and high packed action moments. The best mm. example is probably when they're on the fishing boat early on in the film, when it goes from tense character moments with like, like Stavros is smoking his pipe and pretending to be like a bumbling Greek fisherman who, is a little older and then immediately going into just fighting this German patrol boat and basically slaughtering them. It's it just like almost an instant transition from all of these characters acting in a high tension moment to just full on action scene. Yeah. And it's, it's tough to make that kind of transition. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that t- a it's tough on the actors, I think, but b it's tough as a director to get the tone of something like that right, you know, because it's it's easier to play continue playing along as you were, you know, not to not to mix it up that way. So, yeah, and it has to you have to give a lot of credit to both the actors and the director for that because yeah. if it's the greatest director in the world, and the actors just can't do it, then it can't happen. But if it's the greatest actor in the world and the director just doesn't have the vision for it. It still doesn't happen, but they came Mm. together in such a way that they were able to do all of these different high tension scenes and really emotional scenes throughout the film that keep you interested in it and then go immediately into action scenes, usually almost right after a character scene that's either very emotional or very intense and then directly into the action and usually resulting in pretty good outcome for the group with exploding Germans. Yeah. And everybody loves exploding Nazis. Let's face it. Yeah. I mean, come on. They're Nazis. I mean, yeah, exactly. And Anthony Quinn, what can you say with this film? You would not want to meet him in a dark alley when he's mad at you. (laughs) No, he is awesome in this movie. I mean, and I like Anthony Quinn in pretty much everything I've ever seen him in, but this is probably my favorite role for him. 
because he is just so just gritty. I mean, he's he's perfect, and he plays as you said, Ben. You know, when they're on the ship, he plays the bumbling. Uh, you know, just I'm just a bumbling Greek sailor. Pay no attention to me. And he plays that up again when they've been kit when they've been captured by the uh, Germans in the town. You know, and it's his ability to to drop in and out of that that leads to them being able to escape both of those situations. I think, but. You know, and I mean, the guys won just a ton of awards, you know, BAFTAs and Golden Globes. And I think he won a couple. Of, yeah, he won a couple of Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor for Viva, Viva Zapata and Best Supporting Actor for Lust for Life. So there you go. Yeah, and this Oscar definitely winner. showed off his range in acting going from in the beginning of the movie, he's almost like almost like another secret agent kind of like Keith Mallory was where he's waiting mm. in his room reading the newspaper. But when he hears somebody, he's gone at the door ready to deal with it. If it's somebody coming to get him and you can tell almost immediately that him and Keith Mallory have a very complex relationship and that they have a lot <laughs> yeah. of drama together. And it really, what? comes out through the film because at first you think they're almost great friends and then it goes more into oh Stavros hates this guy yeah doesn't just hate him he's gonna kill him after the war I mean it's it's past hate you know I hate a lot of people doesn't mean I'm gonna kill him but this guy he not only hates him and as Gregory Peck says there's a great line in here that Peck says do you, you know, somebody asked him, do you think he's going to kill you before the end of the war? And he said, as long as, as long as he hates Nazis more than he hates me, and I am helping him kill Nazis, then no. But the minute that equation changes, it's all up for grabs. <laughs> Which was great because then there were scenes with him where they're um, helping each other. Well, you know, his character, Anthony Quinn's character is holding Gregory Peck's character on the mountain as they're scaling up and he could just let him go. And, and, yeah. and, and nobody would say anything. Nobody would know and that kind of stuff. And uh, because you but, know about their past history, the tension is. Mm -hmm. awesome. Yep. And the same is true. The flip side of that, there's a scene where Gregory Peck is basically, he takes a uh, fishing hook pole which is a big long pole with a with a sharp pointed end and a pointed hook, and he's reaching it into the water to help get uh, Stavros out because Stavros is trying to swim out to a boat and he's just exhausted and he's going to drown if somebody doesn't reach out and get him. And you know Mallory's pointing this spear at him, and there's a moment where Stavros is like, "Is he trying to stab me in the face? What's going on here?" <laughs> and I, you know, and you see it on his in his eyes too. He's like, "Oh my God, is he going to stab me? What is this?" But no, he's helping me get on the boat. So there you go. They did do it. And oh, go ahead, Ben. They did do a great shot there where they showed it from Gregory Peck's perspective, where you can see it clearly, and then they flipped it around and they gave you a more muddled like. This guy's head isn't a hundred percent. Like his vision is starting to go. Look from Stav or from Anthony Quinn's character in the water up at Gregory Peck, where he's like, "Is he trying to hit me?" 
yeah, is he going to stab me? Is he going to hit me? What's going on here? It's a, no, it's a, it's a great little, I mean, this movie is just full of little nuanced scenes like that. And that's what makes the film so good because there's a lot more meaning than what's just there at the surface. Speaking of little meanings and Anthony Quinn, one of the things we found out listening to the special features, did you notice the red undershirt that Anthony Quinn's character was wearing? Yeah. Well, during the movie, he would slowly move the sleeves up when he was, when they were disguised as Nazis. So you'd see a little more red and a little more red. And when he gets to the scene where he's about to swim out to the boat, he has the shrapnel or whatever, his arm, his shoulder is hurt. He takes off the Nazi shirt. You see the full red shirt. And then when he's out there, everything else is drab. But you see this character with this red shirt, and it just draws you right to him. And I think it was Gregory Peck who said, Anthony playing that all the way. He knew what he was doing because <laughs> he's such a great chess player that he knew he wanted that end scene to be him in that red shirt. And, you know, it's just, we can – Greg, Gregor picked it and said he wasn't upset about it. He just said, it's brilliant, you know, and that just shows you the talent that a lot of these gentlemen, especially Anthony Quinn, put into their characters – and there's little nuances that you can pick up on in repeat viewings, or maybe you might be lucky enough to catch it the first time. But it's just amazing how that, that little bit of red and more red and eventually full red shirt just draws your attention right to him. And what's best about it is it was something that Anthony Quinn knew would fit with his character because he was a Greek and because all the other Greeks in the film were wearing these brighter, vibrant colors or at least weren't wearing, like, tan um, except for, I think Anna wears tan for part of the film, and so does um, yeah. Maria. 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 But he right. had this, like, had... Greek look. And speaking of, the, 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 speaking of chemistry, um, Anthony Quinn's character and, and Irini Pappas' character, Maria, they have that great chemistry going on in the film. And I think that's like your, your film's true love story, without yep. ever being a typical love story. Well, that's it. And I think it influences, I mean, it it definitely influences the way the whole film, uh, you know, they interact throughout. Once they've joined, once she's joined them, it really does influence the way the whole character arc goes. And there's just these small moments that they uh, have these, they exchange looks. Or, you know, he, you know, he hands her something and there's just this palpable tension between them, which you're right. That's the real love story of the movie. I think. I especially like it when they're um, right, when she's driving the truck and she's quizzing him or actually interrogating him about like, um, <laughs> are you married? Are you, are you see, basically are you, like, are you seeing somebody, you know, and, and asking, have you killed a lot of um, Nazis or, you know, <laughs> Like the yeah, he's, manliness. He's, yeah, he's passing the Greek woman test is what it is, you know. And that's the thing. I don't think I would be very good at being a Greek husband because I haven't killed a lot of Nazis. So, and I do think that's a requirement now, which it's getting hard to fill. <laughs> well, I'm is, just saying. That is true. That would, that would be hard. I mean, you know. And, uh... <laughs> But it, it, I just thought it was interesting about how that interrogation's going. And you know, and you know where it's going. I mean, it's not like it's. 
but it, but it added some moments there to him and with the glance as you said with the glances and the little gestures I, it, it's amazing with you know what she and him were able to bring and and she's been in so many films um it, it's um, it's it's just I, I think she's acted with anthony quinn and a couple other films before so you i'm not sure if she did any prior to this with him but they they have that great chemistry, and if they, people noticed it from this film, then that obviously led to what they did in, other, in, in later work. Yeah. Well, and, you know, speaking of people that ended up kind of having chemistry together offset, and I'm not talking about sexual chemistry here, but Gregory Peck and David Niven, apparently, you know, this was really the film where they really got to know each other, and they became lifelong friends after this working together on this film. In fact, I want to say that Peck gave part of the eulogy at David Niven's funeral. So, you know, that's just, you know, they became really good friends on the set. Uh, You know, apparently they played a lot of chess together with Anthony Quinn, David Niven, and uh, Gregory Peck and just became buddies. Oh, apparently in the special features it goes into this, Anthony Quinn really liked playing chess and was very good at it. So he started playing Gregory Peck, I think they said it was one day. And he basically beat the pants off Gregory Peck at chess every time that they played. And Uh, as a result, the whole cast started getting into playing chess. And then the whole crew started playing chess during the breaks to the point where they were going out and shooting the scenes and then running back to see who could beat who in chess. And the director said it was like when he walked on the set, it was like a chess tournament had broken out on set because all these people were sitting around huddled over these chess boards seeing who could beat who. <laughs> that is that is actually pretty awesome because, you know, you, you don't always associate film sets with the best behavior. And I'm going to say this, if I ever worked on a film where everybody was playing chess between scenes, I would probably dance a little jig because it's like, yes, nobody's causing trouble. (laughs) They're playing chess. It's awesome. Spoken like a true producer. (laughs) Hey, yeah, it's, yeah, wow. Uh, Trust me, nobody's played chess between scenes on any movie I've been on. Oh, no. Apparently, they said that it took uh, David Niven's 14-year-old son to dethrone Anthony Quinn as their set chess champion. Really? Yep. Apparently, he came in, it must have been two days or something, to visit, and he beat Gregory Peck, beat David Niven. I think they said he beat... He beat just about everybody, and then eventually it was the big matchup everybody was waiting for. Anthony Quinn <laughs> versus the the 14-year-old prodigy as they were building him up and Quinn lost. <laughs> and Gregory Peck was like we were all so happy he lost too. <laughs> you know that is kind of awesome and and you know to have this 14-year-old kid be the chess master out of all these people is really funny. Well, to get to throw Anthony Quinn a little bit of mercy, he was going back and forth between scenes, and I'm sure he, the kid was just sitting there at the table. So, was, yeah. So just just well, to give, but, just to put in a little bit of context, it wasn't like Quinn was sitting there the whole time playing him, 
but he, he said, I lost. You know, so he didn't, he didn't use any excuses. I'm giving him an excuse, but he didn't give himself an excuse. Hey, well, fair enough. And, you know, it's good, it's good to be gracious about stuff like that. <laughs> Interesting enough, I also read that David Niven almost died during the filming of this. Ooh, how'd that happen? Well, there is a scene where he's setting explosives and he's in water and, and, next, and, and next to a ladder. Um, and it, somehow, whatever it is, he ended up getting sick because of that. And he was in the hospital, and he was out for, I think I read, weeks. And they were talk, they were filming other scenes with, that he was not involved in, but then they started to talk about, did he have to bring in somebody else and, re, and start doing reshoots and then cut them, and then eventually recovered enough to where he could finish the filming and so on. But, yeah, he almost died during the filming. Wow. I saw in the features, they talked about another time where I believe it was David Niven almost died there because during the boat scenes in the storm, they had the boat set up on these hydraulic lifters that would pull it up and down to make it look like it was rocking. And they had water being shot through fire hoses, then going, being blown by two airplane engines, they said, to shoot it at the boat. And then they were dumping things from above to actually like shove the actors around. And apparently at one point, David Niven got washed off the boat and his arm of his coat got caught in one of the hydraulic lifts underneath the boat and he was stuck underwater. And one of the other actors ended up pulling him out, tearing the coat sleeve and keeping him from drowning. Wow. And as intense as that scene was, I could totally see that happening. I mean, you know, you think about that. That's to stage something like that. And, you know, you're shooting a film. So odds are they did not get this on the first take. So how long do you think those actors had to spend just being pummeled by all that water and the wind and the hydraulic bouncing of the ship and all that stuff. I mean, my God, I'd rather be in a real storm. It'd be safer. <laughs> yep. They also said, um, I think it, well, they didn't say it, but I think I read that they ended up winning a golden globe. I want to say, or, uh, Oh no, they won the Academy award for best effects and special effects. So mm-hmm. I, I guess they, it was worth it in the end. Nobody died. Yeah. And they, they won the Academy award, but a lot yep, of the actors they won. said it was scary. I can only imagine. But yeah, they did. They won the Academy Award for Best Effects, and uh, they won two Golden Globe Awards, one for Best Drama and one for Best Original Score for the music by uh, Dimitri Tiomkin, if I said his name right. <laughs> oh, that's why we're waiting what? for you to say, because we know, Nick, you know how to say all these names. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure, I do. Here's the thing. Uh, I, think Mr. Tompkin, I think it's Tompkin. Tompkin. But it's got a, it's got an I in there. Dear Lord, why put extra letters in? Rage. Anyway. But I could but, easily be wrong also, so don't, 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 don't hold me to it. Well, if he's listening and decides to call in and correct us, then I'll accept the chastisement. That is true. But he, I mean, he, he did so many scores. Um, Oh yeah. One of my favorites that he did was for the high and the mighty, the John Wayne movie. Mm. Are you familiar with well, that one? 
Yes, and I, I'm going to say, dude, he was nominated for, I was looking this up, about 15 Academy Awards for his scores. And he actually won for three of them. So there you go. I mean, my goodness, what an amazing career that guy's had. Well, exactly. And, and, and you had him there with the excellent cinematography going on by Oswald Morris. I mean, because uh, people have to remember this film was done in 1961, film maybe 1960. It's hard to say, like, you know, what year they were doing the filming uh, of yeah. different parts. But the practical effects, everything was just working so well. They had the um, help with the Greek army and Navy, so they were able to make it look very realistic uh, by having mm. – tons of people to help them to make it look like, you know, cause sometimes you have these war movies and it's the same 12 guys rotating around. You really can't show a big crowd scene. But yeah. This one didn't have that issue. Yeah. It was really yeah, similar and- to Kelly's heroes where you, they had the help of like actually having real equipment and real soldiers there. Yeah. And that does make a big difference in your production. I mean, my God, but going back to what you just said about when it was released, it was uh, released on April 27th, 1961 in London. So I'm going to say they had to be filming it in 1960. So, yeah. So 60 years ago on the dot, pretty much. And that was Another anniversary. Almost. Another. Well, the reason he's saying that Kelly's Heroes, which we did a a few weeks back was on the 50th anniversary, which came out in 1970. Ooh. Um, then we did um, Strange Magic, which is episode that came out a couple weeks ago. And that one was five years ago. Um, what else was there? Jaws. Jaws, which we did with Alistair Hughes. That was 45 years ago. So, but, and we didn't, we're not even trying. It was just by sheer luck we were hitting all these big <laughs> anniversaries or five-year things of um, different movies. It's not like we sit there. It's like, Oh, let's plan this out. You know? Oh, look. (laughs) Well, and you guys are, you guys are using the most, I guess, random method of choosing your films ever with the dice. So, you know, they, it would be tough to, it would be tough to sit and plan around those anniversaries that way. But, but still, yeah, it is kind of awesome. I mean, that's like we did Flash Gordon on the B-Movie cast a couple of episodes back, and this is the 40th anniversary of Flash Gordon. And we totally did not do it because it was the 40th anniversary. We did it because one of the guys who does the podcast with us occasionally wanted to do Flash Gordon, and we were like, yeah, we love that movie. Ah." I can't help myself. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? No, it's impossible to not do that. And, and okay, I'm rabbit-holing us, so swinging it back around to guns. <laughs> and I want to ask you a question. Growing up, okay. did you have a Guns of Navarone playset? I did. But did you I have did one? not. Oh, my. I did not. But that said, I had a Planet of the Apes playset, and I had a bunch of that stuff. And the reason that's important is director J. Lee Thompson directed not one, but two Planet of the Apes movies, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. But the death, so, place, the death place that have guns as big as the guns of Navarone? <laughs> no. 
It did not have guns as big as the guns that have Rome, but it had more talking human humanized apes. Did the guns that have Rome playset have talking humanized apes? Not to my recollection, to my... but I could have always uh-huh. put them in. But I could have always played with them on the set, and then they would have been there. <laughs> Rage. Okay, fine. <laughs> I wish my mom would never have thrown that thing out or gotten rid of it or somehow it disappeared because those things are selling on eBay with just, with just, just, um, the big plastic, um, um, part that has the, the mountain and stuff without all the pieces for, yeah. for, for a lot of money. <laughs> oh yeah. That's the thing. Classic toys. Like, and you know, we talked about this on the, uh, on the clash of the Titans, uh, podcast that we just cut because, there were toys released for Clash of the Titans, and those things are worth a small fortune now. And yeah, everybody's mom seemed to throw them out. So everybody's mom from about 1950 to about 1980, uh, they caused the reason that eBay now makes so much money off of collectible toys. <laughs> because if nobody's mom had thrown anything out, then these things wouldn't be collectible. We'd all still have them. And I don't know how I feel about that. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so what were some of your likes about the film, Nick? Well, you know, I, my favorite thing about the film, I think, was the relationships between Anthony Quinn's character, David Niven's character, and Gregory Peck's character. The three of them... You know, it was either Quinn playing off against Peck or Peck playing off against Niven and back and forth. And I just really enjoyed that because that's it goes back to what we were saying. This was a very character driven film. And so that is probably the thing I like best about the movie is just the way that these characters interplayed and, you know, did their thing together. And I also like the fact that it didn't mince words with the horrors of war. You know, I mean, you had the butcher of Barcelona who was so tired of killing. And he has that great line about, you know, I will shoot somebody from 200 yards away and it's just another person. But when you use the knife, you've got to be right there and you, you can smell them when you kill them. And, you know, that's just talking about the way that's traumatized him and David Niven's character talking about what, you know, he feels Peck's character is willing to do to get the job done and how dehumanized he had become. I mean, it's just some really amazing dialogue, but also some amazing looks at the effects of war. You know, and I think that was that was a big deal. And a lot of people would uh, would say that this was an anti-war film. And Gregory Peck, I think, would be chief among them because he was a staunch uh, he was a staunch uh, pacifist during the Korean conflict and later during the uh, Vietnam War. He was an- adamantly against both of those engagements. And also to take it a step farther, on James Darren's character Spiros. Um, ends up having to have having issues because he loses, um, as as Anthony Quinn's character says, he forgot what he was there for, and yeah. because he, he 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 so instead of staying on the mission, he goes off mission because of all the things that have been happening to his area where he grew up and lived and that kind of stuff, and he just 
and that's what ended up yeah. leading him to have um some problems. Yeah, some pro- that's a good way to put it. He has some problems. <laughs> no, I'm trying not to spoil anything, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. I I know you are, and I think it's a good it's a good way to put it. It causes some problems, and let's just say those problems are not him having to do another musical number. <laughs> In a way, it's almost like the Guns of Navarone touched on a lot of themes that you see in more modern war movies with the effects of the trauma on the people. Mm-hmm. Before, it seemed really popular to do that in war movies. Yeah. Really? It- and No, I think you're right. And, and it also touches on the idea of just how hard it is to take a human life and what a big deal that is. You know, because in war movies, a lot of times people are just popping caps and everybody left, right and center and stabbing people and breaking their necks or whatever, you know, and it's like they don't think a thing about it. And it's a huge thing to take another person's life and it changes you. And I'm saying that like I've done it. I have not. (laughs) But my understanding is that it changes you. And I think they address that very nicely in this film. Exactly, because I mean, you know, it's there's so many good things about this movie. I mean, it's 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 for me. I, I really can't think of anything I would really change or alter, because the pacing is flows nicely. It, it gives you the, mm-hmm. the the um the intimate character scenes. It gives you the, the, so to me, it gives me the micro and the macro of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, going on in the movie and uh, there's really I mean is it a, is it a little bit predictable yes there are some things that are, are, are pretty much foreshadowed or predictable in it but then again there are a lot of movies that are predictable that doesn't mean they're not good because the acting mm. is first class um, you, I mean you really have I mean you have the, the three main leads which we already mentioned you know Peck, Niven and Quinn I don't think there's I can't think of a movie off the top of my head where they've ever given a bad performance. They might have been in a bad movie, but they've never given a bad <laughs> performance. <laughs> and then you That then is you, true. And then you look at all the supporting characters who have done great work. I mean, it's just really it's it's a movie you don't see as often nowadays where people that have done great work in their movies like, yeah, I'll do the supporting role because I want to be in this picture. I want to work with these actors or these direct or this director, which that was not the reason why they picked this film because he got hired a week before. But, uh, but as you say with James Darren, I mean, he wanted to get a chance to change his um, image. I'm sure he knew Peck was in it and Quinn was in it and Niven was in it. He's thinking, I'm going to work with these three guys. I'm going to learn a lot just seeing how they do things. And that's for a lot of young actors that that would be something that they would, you know, really treasure and do. So for me, I, I really can't think of anything that I would really improve. Um, or, 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 or change in a movie. What about you, Nick? You know, that's the thing. It's easy to be a armchair quarterback and come in and say, I'd change this and I'd do that and blah, blah, blah. You know what? I think that if you messed with this film, you would be, I'm not going to say it's perfect. Like, you know, there's, there's a few problems, but at the end of the day, this film is it works very well, and I love the way you described it as the micro and the macro of war. And that is a very good way to put it, because it does zoom in on these key character moments 
and then zoom out to the you know to the to the action as it were and i don't know that i'd change anything in it so yeah which there are some movies that i would love to go back and change some things you know but <laughs> not this one and ben what about you i think this is going to take us right up to the end of the movie i'm going to try not to spoil what happens but uh, towards the very end when they're actually trying to blow up the guns, I would say I would have Mallory doing something because it seemed to me in those scenes where he's talking to David Niven's character, trying to find Miller and see what he's doing with the explosives, it seemed like Mallory just wasn't doing anything. And I'd say to me, I would have had him doing something like setting up some form of barricade to try and slow down the Germans once they get through the door or doing something, making it look like he was doing something, just because it seemed to yeah. me like he was pacing around, not he doing did. anything. He, he did tie the rope to the pole so they could That's get true. Away. He tied a rope. He tied a rope. Yeah, but he did that, like, in the very first scene when they get in, and then just after that, he's just, like, walking around being Gregory Peck playing Mallory. <laughs> just, just, just to flip it, I mean, he, he was doing a lot in this whole movie, and Miller was just complaining. This was Miller had, a, as, as Nick said earlier, he had one job, and this was yeah. Miller's one job. <laughs> That's and, it. And none of the other guys could do this job but Miller. So it's, it's really, I mean, you know. I think and Miller, plus Peck. Had, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, plus Peck had to save his strength in case David Niven needed to swim at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Because remember, he kept that was the running joke through the whole thing. Remember, I can't swim. So I don't know. I would have just, I would have liked to see him doing something more proactive. I don't know if they had it set up where he was doing something in one cut, but decided not to use it or something like that. Because at this point in the movie, it is flashing back and forth to a lot of different characters in different areas of the city of Navarone. So it's not as focused on Mallory and Miller. Mm but it kind of comes back to them and shows their progression. So I, I would say that it like it doesn't hurt the film that it doesn't seem like he's doing as much, but I would have liked to see him doing a little bit more of something just to show that I think it would have stayed more in his character line to always be doing something rather than mm. to be standing around talking to Miller while Miller's setting up explosives. Yeah, I, I could totally see that. Um, the only thing I would say about that, that kind of going back to this is when, because remember, Miller had issues. He didn't have all of his equipment at this point, and I don't want to give anything away. So he was having to do a little bit of improvising. And I think part of the reason they had Peck doing so little was so that they could have those dialogue scenes where Niven is explaining to Peck what he's doing and how it's going to work so that the audience can understand what is, what he's doing and how it's going to work so that later on, when you see what he's done, you understand the tension that's coming from it because there's some tense moments that are generated by understanding what, you know, Mallor or what Miller's done to blow up these guns. And by the way, I will take back my earlier statement. There is one thing I would change in this movie. There's a scene in there when the Germans are looking 
you know, trying to find if there's been any sabotage to the guns. And they're tearing the gun bunker apart. There's like 100 Germans in there searching. And there's two of them in there with metal detectors. And those guys are walking along the rails for the ammo loading system. And those are metal rails. And they're walking along the metal rails with a metal detector. I just don't know what they would find. Yes, you found the rails. They're right there. You know, somebody told them, take this, walk that. They're like, yes, sir. And that's what they did. <laughs> yep. you know, it's just... Well, that's, that's, that's it, you know. By God, we will detect this metal. Yeah, yeah, detect the metal. It is here. We have detected it. Yeah. We are following orders. Yes, and that's what yes. they did. Uh, yeah. Yes, we were following orders. Oh, there was one other thing that, like, it didn't take away from the movie, but some of the times when they're talking in German and you don't really know what they're saying, they could have thrown in subtitles there, but... You don't know if they're really speaking German or if they're just, like, making words up that sound German. So, I mean, it doesn't... Neither of these things I'm talking about, they don't take away from the movie. It was just things yeah. that being it's nitpicky now, like, like 60, yeah. 59 years later, it's... I don't know. One thing, yeah, no, I could say that. One thing I'll say about German, something I read... Gregory Peck was not able to speak fluent enough German, so they dubbed in another actor dubbed in the, the, when he was speaking German. Oh. That actually makes sense because remember one of the reasons that Mallory wanted him on the case, or excuse me, one of the reasons, yeah, Lieutenant Mallory wanted him. Wait, no, who was the reason? Was, uh, uh, Franklin. Franklin. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. The reason Franklin wanted Mallory on the mission was because he, quote-unquote, spoke German like a German and Greek like a Greek. So, you know, that that makes sense. I was like, wow, Gregory Peck really studied up. I'm impressed. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't put it by Gregory Peck, you know. I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite actors of all time. Oh, yeah. And I, I wouldn't – so when I read that, I was like, man, they really pulled that off because I did not know – you know, it was not him saying the line, you know, now knowing I could probably watch it again and look to see the synchronization is if it's perfect, you know, yeah. and that kind of stuff. And then maybe I might be able to catch it, but then, you know, it, if you're, I don't want to be that guy. Their lip syncing <laughs> now, was impeccable. And since it was peck, it was obviously impeccable. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about, um, Nick, do you recommend this movie to for people to view? I definitely recommend this movie, and I recommend it for several reasons. One is it's a good piece of solid film history. I mean, it's just a well-made film featuring some of the iconic actors of Hollywood from the 50s and 60s. And so just from that level, I think it is definitely worth watching. Uh, I also recommend it for folks who like action movies because it has enough action to keep you happy while enough plot to keep somebody who's with you who's more into plot from going crazy, you know. And and finally, I would just watch it because there is so much depth to the film that you could spend a really long time analyzing it and still not hit everything going on in this film. 
I mean, I just, I love it on so many levels. Ben, do you recommend this movie to other people? I would definitely recommend this film. It hits a lot of thing, a lot of notes and emotions that would carry through to viewers today, even though it was made a long time ago. It a lot of its themes carry through, and you actually find them in a lot of movies that are made nowadays that are about the same era of World War II and even Vietnam, where it it almost carries through all the way to 2020 where we're in our own little crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, I, and I already said earlier about what I felt about the movie when I was talking about, are there any, is there anything I would change? And I really don't have anything to add to that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a movie that still stands up very well. And, uh, and, and like I said, I didn't even notice the red shirt until this recent viewing, you know, like how it was slowly being utilized, you know, by Anthony Quinn. So it added even something a little more special to the movie for me. Like when you start to watch things and you notice these different little nuances and also then you're starting to pay attention to the other characters because you're not mm. focusing on the main dialogue and you can see their reactions. And when you have actors like this, their reaction shots and the things they're doing in the background are, are just awesome. There was one scene um, early on when they were still getting together and Anthony Quinn's character's looking for bugs and you see him going into the second room, David Niven's character spinning his head back and forth, trying to listen to the plot of what they're going to do, the plan. And Anthony Quinn's character is just doing whatever he wants to do. And it, it's just... How they, how they set the shot up so you got the depth of the scene and, and Anthony Quinn by turning his head back and forward it was it was a great way because you're getting in, you're getting the um, the exposition dump so to speak but it was done in a nice way where your eyes are able to enjoy a lot of different things as you're hearing what the mission is. Hmm. Totally agree. So it's three out of three recommends. I mean, I'm I'm, so, I'm real shocked that you recommended it since you picked the movie. I mean, who would have known, you know? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, uh, you but, know, you know, I, I often pick movies I hate just to pick on them. Now, Nick, let me ask you a thing. What do you think of somebody who is to come on here and pick a movie for us to review and then not recommend it? <laughs> That's interesting. Um I would have to say that there'd have to be a strong, I would have to feel very strongly about a movie as in I super duper strongly dislike this movie in order to be willing to devote time and effort to talk about it for an hour or two hours, just so I could say how much I don't like this movie. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's a weird concept to me. It's I, when I don't like a movie, I try not to waste a lot of my time on it. So there you go. That's my thought. Good. I'll share with a certain person that, that did that. <laughs> oh, okay. So, you know, and that kind of thing. I like to rag on them, you know, cause like you, you pick the movie that you don't recommend the movie. You know, like what, what is this? <laughs> I could see myself doing that. Honestly, like where I would pick a film I might not have seen before or hadn't seen in a long time and then rewatching it. Think, Oh man, what was I thinking? Okay, there I could see that. I could definitely see that happening, especially if I hadn't seen it. If I'd said, oh, you know what? I'd really like to watch The Guns of Navarone, and uh, 
oh yeah, I need to come up with a war movie for this podcast. Well, the guns of Navarone, and then I can I can decide, you know. But but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't normally pick something like that, something I didn't have a strong positive feeling about to spend energy researching and time, uh, you know, rewatching and everything else. So. Yeah, and, and and I think that's happened to Nick and I. It's it's gonna it might have happened to you when you see something when you're in like ten to fifteen, and then you go watch it when you're over forty five. You're looking at it with a totally different lens of life experiences, and sometimes the nostalgia factor kicks in, and it has the movie fly or float up high. But then sometimes that nostalgia factor doesn't kick in, and you're just like, oh, this this didn't end yeah. well. <laughs> Yeah, hashtag Disney Plus. <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I've gone back and revisited a number of my favorite wonderful world of Disney movies from when I was growing up in the 70s. And, yeah, I have been shocked by just how bad some of these films were. Um, I'm talking to you, Computer War Tennis Shoes. <laughs> so... Well, you should should be extremely happy. Mikhail is not with us right now because she loves those Kurt Russell movies. Uh, And when I was growing up, I loved those movies. And I can't even bring myself to watch The World's Strongest Man now because I was so disappointed by the computer war tennis shoes when I rewatched it. (laughs) I watched the, The World's Strongest Man just a couple years ago. And I enjoyed it again. So it's, uh, but again, it's the nostalgia factor. How much is that going to carry you through it? And I always enjoyed that one as a kid. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it it could also be a movie that like you watched it and you enjoyed it, but while you're watching it, you're thinking, oh man, there might not be anyone else that likes this film. (laughs) That's called watching Hudson Hawk for me. It's It's like Godzilla Final Wars for me. Because I love Godzilla Final Wars, and I know mm. in the back of my mind, there are a lot of people that hate this movie. <laughs> Don't worry, I like it too, Ben. So there you go. And he knows I like it, so it's um, there you go. It's three out of three. Um, <laughs> so, Guns of Navarone and Godzilla Final Wars, that's the recommendations taken away <laughs> from the, this episode. <laughs> Both of them got three out of three. There you go. <laughs> And we don't even have to de- dedicate an episode to Godzilla Final Wars now. <laughs> yeah, it's been yes, covered. Really. Hey, it's the it's it's Final Wars. What do you need to say about it? Yeah, it's the final word. Yeah, it's just word. It's Matrix and Godzilla together. We, 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 which we, yeah, which is just <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Especially when Godzilla looks at the camera and goes, "Whoa!" <laughs> That's my favorite bit of Godzilla Final Wars. I know some people don't like it where he trashes all the monsters so quick. That's the part that just Godzilla's supposed to be the king of monsters. He just takes him out like a boss. Boom, boom, boom. Well, that's you know? it. That's he's, what I love. He's the, yeah. It's what you would expect. <laughs> now. And when Greg, Gregory Peck shows up, it's even better. Well, that's true. Every movie is better with a little Gregory Peck. That's right. Now, we're going to roll a die, and um, they'll decide what die we're going to roll for you, whether one or two for your next genre, Nick. Okay. And die number one. So okay. here's, the, here's the things that you might get. You could get comedy, animation, 
foreign, sci-fi, independent, and fantasy. Okay. Those are all respectable genres, and I'm, I'm raring to go. Sci-fi. Oh, my heart is broken. <laughs> sci-fi how awful i don't know any good sci-fi movies well, you don't have to name it now you don't have to name it now you can you can nope. you can let this build and in the audience percolate percolate yeah that's per- what it is. Yeah. let it marinate well <laughs> i will i will marinate this in some percolation and come back with a sci-fi movie to rule the nation boom dropping the sweet rhymes here on the diecast podcast <laughs> <laughs> And Nick, we want to thank you for taking time out of your day to join us for this review of the Guns of Navarone. I hope you had a good time. Uh, guys, this has been so much fun. I really, I, I enjoy being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to watch a movie that I really enjoy and feel like I was doing it for a reason other than just personal self-satisfaction. It's like, I got to rewatch this movie because I'm doing it for a podcast. And so that gives me, you know, that gives me street cred when I'm rewatching it. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And I think you said earlier before we were recording, you were watching it with your wife, uh, Fiona, and she was mm-hmm. enjoying it also. So actually, we, we, we you know, made two people have it. It, it. You are correct. You know, it's a, it's a good movie, and it's one that Fiona really enjoys. And if I can watch a movie that Fiona enjoys for a, for a podcast, that makes it a lot easier on me. Because sometimes I watch films for podcasts that are so Fiona does not enjoy them that I will, and she doesn't ask me to do this. I do this because I love her, is I will watch, I will get up at like six in the morning one morning and watch a movie before she gets up just because I know she has such a low opinion of a movie or doesn't want to see it or whatever. And so it's, it's really nice to watch film that I can say, Hey, can I, let's watch the guns and Navarone. And she's like, Ooh, I'll get the popcorn. You know? <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Well, it's more like, Ooh, I'll get the cheese and wine. But anyway, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's still, it's still good stuff. <laughs> it is. Cheese and wine is British popcorn for a film. So there you go. All right. So, but thanks again. And uh, for listeners. Thanks guys. Oh, you're welcome for listeners. Um, how can they follow you, Nick? Um, uh, well, usually staying behind the bushes while I'm walking, I don't notice people there, but Oh, Oh, you mean virtually. Um, the, the best way to follow me virtually is visit author nickbrown.com and remember folks that's nick with no k because my parents were poor and they could not afford one so author nic brown.com uh, you can also find me on twitter at bmovie man and on facebook at bmovie man also and of course listeners you can listen to the bmovie cast podcast and um, hear nick with mary and their ever revolving guests you know, yep. as, as they tackle one movie after another, and um, it's it's your episodes have been. I've I've listened to you guys. I think for the last two years, and you've been around, like you said, for twelve years or or even more. I mean, it's been around yep. for a long time, and you just recently had your four hundred and fiftieth episode, where you yep. guys did one of my all time favorites, Clash of the Titans. So, if listeners, if you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it. It is an epic episode. It is an epic episode. It was so epic that it ended up being broken into two episodes. 
because we had so many guests on that, including one of the uh, foundation, one of the heads of the Ray Harryhausen Foundation, Mr. Uh, John Walsh, who I believe was on your show recently, too. Uh, he uh, comes on and talks about Ray for Ray's 100th birthday, because our uh, 450th episode is going to be posted right before Ray's 100th birthday on June 29th. That's excellent. And um, since you brought up Flash Gordon earlier, did you know that John Walsh has written a book about that movie, Flash Gordon? Uh, I sure did. As a matter of fact, he talks about his Flash Gordon book some uh, while he's on the podcast talking about uh, Clash of the Titans and Ray Harryhausen. So we're definitely, as a matter of fact, I'm definitely planning on ordering a copy of the book because on top of everything else, I think it's only going to be like 30 quid for this uh, coffee table book of the history of Flash Gordon, the definitive guide. So I'm super excited about it. Excellent. And um, the listeners, again, you could follow us on um, what, Ben? Diecast Movie Reviews at Instagram.com. Also Diecast Movie Review Podcast at, on Facebook. And you can send us an email or an MP3 of feedback to Diecast Movie Review Podcast at gmail.com. You know, feel free to Word. send us. Yeah, send us some messages. We, 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 we don't get many emails. We get some messages from some people that know me already, but we don't get many emails. So try, start sending us some stuff. And we're going to end this episode. Definitely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and um, we're going to end this episode with um, a song I talked um, about earlier. It's um, called Seaside, but it's sung all in Greek. And um, we'll and exit out with that. Thank you for listening. And, of course, I hit the wrong button. But you know, <laughs> that, trailer was just, all up. that trailer was just so good, you know. <laughs> He's two for two. This is, what happen- this is what happens when our sound engineer, Michaela, doesn't do a podcast with us. <laughs> yellow, yellow. Nachamilo, <laughs> 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 <laugh